listening to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week we're sharing a conversation about The Plagiarists, playing here at Film at Lincoln Center through Thursday, July 11th. The film, co-written by experimental filmmakers James N. Kynitz-Wilkins and Robin Chabour, is at once a hilarious send-up of low-budget American indie filmmaking and a provocative inquiry into relationships, race panic, and the social uncanny. The film was an official selection at New Directors New Films earlier this year, where Wilkins, Chabar, and producer Paul Dallas joined programmer Dennis Lim for a Q&A. Let's go to that now. Thanks for being here. Um, sure to begin. <laughs> um, okay, I have a. I'm, James, you um, you shot and edited the film, so uh, I wanted you to maybe just start by talking about the very different um, styles between the first and second parts of the film. This is a very distinctly different uh, visual vocabulary. Um, okay. I also co-wrote it with Robin. Yes. Um, oh yeah, maybe we should say what everybody did. Sorry, yeah. since you didn't earlier. Just, <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, uh, I am a co-producer with these guys. Um, shot it, edited it, co-wrote it with Robin. Um, and uh, yeah, Robin's a producer, writer. Paul's a uh, producer. <laughs> so, the so the question was like the, the, mm-hmm. the distinct styles. Um, yeah, so I guess like the, the movie's structured, clear, you know, in, in sort of three parts. Um, the first part is there's sort of like I guess like a trick that's happening in a way that I may or may not be evident. Um, it's not it's not necessary to like you know identify it, but the uh, the younger characters Tyler and Anna are never actually in the same physical space as the character Clip. Um, they actually never met each other until tonight. Um, and so the movie kind of moves in that sense from like a sort of like purely fragmented um, presentation to something that, um, in my opinion, is like sort of like the ultimate sort of natural, like potentially just like an assemblage of like raw footage on a tape, you know, uh, like a potentially found tape or something. So moving from like maybe complete artifice to like, you know, the natural was sort of an attempt at least. Um, uh, can you talk about the, for you, like this conceptual significance of shooting the first half that way, of not having the actors in the, phys- in the same space physically? Uh, yeah, I mean, anything to say about Obviously that? Obviously, this, was, this yeah. was something that you, at the writing stage, you knew this was how you were going to shoot it. Yeah, it was written into the script, yeah. um, for sure. And that was um, sort of a, a, an issue of like pragmatism, you know, in terms of how we could work with these actors. It actually is kind of the way that like Hollywood films work anyways, you know? Um, usually like the biggest star is sort of just like plugged in. Um, and so in a funny way, it kind of has like the most fidelity to like the sort of aspirations of like indie cinema, I suppose, in a way. Um, yeah. Does that make any sense? So the... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we could also just sort of given overall, which is, I mean, so the first part, I mean, one of the big conceits, I think, of the film and what I thought was really interesting was the way in which um, 
the sort of means of production were kind of built into uh, the script itself. So normally in a process of indie filmmaking or any filmmaking, there's a script and then you go out and you try to find money and that's, you know, you try to, you try to make what is on the page in, in, on screen, but uh, James and Robin had <clears throat> written this with, uh, with um, Michael Cliff Payne as it, in mind, they had, they had, they had thought of the locations, but it, it was, it was, to me, it was more than that. It was also just the idea that you could kind of, you could make a really rich piece of cinema that was primarily dialogue driven and that could kind of unfold as a chamber piece and that something that we could make within a year. I mean, that was the goal it was like, and we pretty much shot this in about five days. Um, yeah, spread out over over a year. Yeah. So you you just alluded to indie cinema, um, which is also something that comes up in the film. Um, it's it's referenced in various ways, um, and I'm wondering if you can talk about your relationship to the I guess this idea of independent cinema, and also what you were trying to how you were trying to engage with it in this film. I feel like we all have like maybe sort of similar but different relationships um, to like so-called indie cinema. For me, it's maybe more um, the difference between sort of working as, I guess like more of an artist or sort of more in a sort of like studio, like, like art studio kind of mode of production um, where one assumes many roles and kind of just like makes things work. Um, and so there isn't quite this kind of like like um, uh, sort of celebration of like this sort of traditional like top down like delegated model, um, and uh, yeah. So I, so I sort of I, I, my my work um, aside from this sort of shows in this sort of weird kind of like crevasse between like the art world and the and the film worlds. Um, and I kind of like that, but it's also like a little it's 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 a lonely place too at times. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, th I mean, I, you know, I think all of us grew up, you know, kind of in the 90s and stuff. And I, when indie cinema became moved from, you know, became a, a genre in a way uh, and, and something that was kind of codified culturally, especially like through Sundance and, and these kinds of institutions. And so, I mean, what does it even mean today? I mean, it's such a sort of empty uh, term. I mean, and I think it's interesting to sort of see what's happening in film today. Um, in, I mean, indie filmmakers want to make films for Netflix. I mean, what what would have in the past been, you know, a kid straight out of, I don't know, some film school wants to just, you know, get a deal with Netflix or Amazon. And it's, the landscape is just so different. So just it, part of the fun of this in a way was just like reflecting on the weirdness of this concept at this moment. <laughs> like, what does this mean? But it always like moves in cycles too. I feel like every 10 years there's a new kind of like, defining sort of indie movement or something, you know, um, in which like, I, personally, I feel like the kernel of it is, 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 is good. Like I agree with it. Like I liked, you know, Dogma 95 movies, um, for instance. Um, but it almost seems like there's like this sort of like burning down of the house in order to rebuild it. But with the sort of the same kind of like aspirational sort of, uh, desires, like the, the desires remain the same kind of, um, which is to like, yeah, break upward into a world where you're like, recognized as legitimate and that's to bring it back to like the artist thing um i think there's a certain freedom in just sort of making making work that's a little bit more um uh less concerned with where 
it kind of like ends up and kind of like exists in its own moment, you know, I guess. Um, I guess the other thing that indie cinema and these sort of independent movements, dogma, American independent cinema, that I think they share is this um, obsession with um, authenticity or the idea of authenticity, um, which is obviously a, a theme in this film. Um, I'm just wondering if you can talk about the development of this this idea in the writing of, of the film, um, this cultural, you know, sort of fetish for authenticity, yet also this like, this almost like mutual acknowledgement that it is on some level impossible and, and, and how that works with this other idea that the film brings up, which is appropriation. And, Maybe you can just. No, no, that's, <laughs> so, a, that's a good question. But, <laughs> what was this? What did you start with? Like, yeah. was, was it? Was it? Was it this idea of, I don't know, Knausgaard's words landing up in somebody else's mouth? Or <laughs> did you start with this idea of? Because you've used um, appropriation techniques in your other work yeah. before, James. So I'm, I'm wondering if that was, you know, how how you started and then how you developed. Well, I, I think. One thing I can just sort of remember, like off the top of my head, is is um, just how uh, there's actually like a relationship between like product placement in movies and just and um, well, like within the sort of like let me, let me back up how, how to frame this. Um, I actually think almost of like the words that are used that are appropriated as being on the same level as say a can of beer or like um, and like a, a a bag of chips or like it, it when it becomes like at that level of material um for some reason that really excites me and when it's sort of sort of um i don't know stripped to these like very just like essential sort of fundamental uh but <laughs> sorry that doesn't make, make make much sense maybe you can i think we wrote this together um <laughs> I, so you're gonna answer it together <laughs> Uh, I'm tired, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, so, I, okay, to back up, just maybe like very like like just start, let's get into storytelling mode, I guess. Um, Knarsgaard was very, you know, has been very present, um, you know, for like 20, 20 years, it, and it really struck me. Um, I actually kind of only realized this once we started like making the movie that he was his his cycle of like novels became bestsellers maybe like 15, there was like a 15 year delay. Um, he wasn't because, translated until- Yeah, like, exactly. So like his kind of like, his kind of current fame is, um, it, it's almost like he's living in the future, you know, in a way. And so there was sort of this like built in um, uh, element of like nostalgia or something. Um, and in, in, in the sort of like, like American or English speaking reception of his work, and so by being around a lot of people who, you know, take literature seriously, I do, I do myself, um, it was sort of interesting to like, I've never actually read that cycle, but to like have people around me like constantly talking about it, you know? So like all these like bits and pieces, um, like I, f I feel like I've read it in a way. Um, and we, so just never, like sort of- You've a, never a, read it. No, I haven't. So like almost like just by being a vessel of like appropriating through um, just being around certain scenes or something like that, you know, and like, like, what do you do with words that are sort of like, um, just not rooted, um, 
in something that in your own immediate experience, but like kind of like foisted upon you, you know. And that's that. In that sense, that's how I would bring it back to words becoming sort of material, you know, like a bottle of menage trois wine or a bag of <laughs> chips or a few phrases from my struggle. You know, it's all it just gets jumbled. Yeah, I like that. So, so how did you find this passage? If you <laughs> just the passage was well, I knew I wanted. I, I, I knew that I, I wanted to deal. I chose the passage and then I proposed it to Robin. It was from the um, the book that's shown the childhood, mm -hmm. the one that deals with his childhood. I, I, we knew that it needed to deal with childhood, but it was actually somewhat somewhat random. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's true. Okay, I want to. Can you talk a little bit about? Um, this is another sort of big question, but I'm, I'm really curious about the role that um, race and class play in this film, which is sometimes spoken and sometimes not, you know, and um, it's implied and it's, it sort of just hovers over almost all the interactions and conversations. And I'm just wondering how you see that sort of connecting to the, your ideas about um, authenticity and appropriation. I think one of the, to me, the important thing about authenticity is that it, it's always like about like finding a root, like an organic root to like childhood. So I think that's why childhood is yeah. so important. And like the, the film itself as being a film is like inherently fractured. So I think a lot of it is about clip existing in a filmscape, in a film world, that it feels a lot like a modern, just living in modern times where everything is like fractured and, and inorganic and doesn't have an organic uh, traceable route to childhood. And um, so like the kid and clip and all these things are kind of like, like undermined. It's almost like the Tyler and Anna like want, desire an authentic source for clip or for all these things and they just don't exist. So I think that's kind of. And a, he's a like literally function. inserted in that sense, right? Like, like he, he kind of, I feel like they look at him as just like a, for his like surface qualities, you know, like, right. um, and, and, uh, yeah, in a way for me, like just to bring it to like to the race question, um, I personally view the, the movie as, or, or rather the, the character of clip who happens to share the name as clip, but it's a, you know, it's a character, um, as you know, he's, he's just, he's just a guy, you know, he's not like a white guy. He's not a black guy. He's just a guy, but he, he, his race is like weaponized against him, you know, like later only when it's like, it becomes like a problem, you know, but they try to like play it off as like really like fine and cool um, up until that point. And in a way he's like, like, like been like just like dropped or airdropped into um, a kind of like typical, maybe typical indie setup or something, you know? And that, that was a starting point with the script is, you know, having a car, making like the cliche of a car breaking down, a young white couple, like a creative class, like making sure we had like all these ingredients to like start out with and then like inserting like literally inserting um, something like foreign, I guess. I think one of the things when I first read the script um, that I think it immediately attracted me was this: all of the sort of slippages that are built into it that um, that sort of bring up a lot of these issues without ever answering them or or kind of um, resolving them in ways that you know would seem like the appropriate way given the sort of maybe 30, first 30 minutes of the movie. 
Um, I think it was by the time we got to Act Three when I was first reading the script, I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, it it became a for me, it's like sort of it's like a existential film, <laughs> and it and it and it um, all of those kinds of slippages that are built into it are 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 kind of possibilities, and and you watch these characters sort of grapple with a certain set of perceptions of of their experiences. But you as the audience can kind of both relate to them, but also kind of see outside this sort of, some of these larger patterns maybe taking place. But at the same time, it it's sort of like a mystery without being solved, kind of. That's sort of how I looked at the film a little bit. Like there was this sort of central question that's maybe not um, entirely resolved, but yet, it's a complete film somehow. <laughs> uh, since you have the actors here, maybe you can talk a little bit about um, just casting. You have a mix of, I think, professional actors and non. I mean, Clip is the musician, right? Which is he's, he's a member of Parliament Funkadelic, I believe. And so, can you talk about how why you wanted him in this role, and also just putting the rest of the cast together? Uh, yeah, this is, um, I guess, on paper, it's Clip's first acting role, right? Um, I, I believe, I mean, you can speak We could ask that. him yeah. if you could. <laughs> yeah. First, yeah. Um, so yeah, like it would, again. <laughs> yeah. I think the acting kind of exists on a spectrum as well, a spectrum sort of similar in parallel, I, I should say, to the structure of the, the movie. I mean, Clip was a non-actor until he became an actor in this movie but a performer in life. And then uh, Eamon Monaghan, who played Tyler, is an artist who acts. Um, he's, he also has a whole art practice. And then um, uh, Lucy and Emily, who played the two women, are professional actors. And so it kind of moved, we, we, we intended it to move from, I guess, a place of, not, I don't want to call it like amateur, or maybe like amateur in like the, like the most technical sense, you know, like not amateur as in bad, but just, as just like non-professional um and then it's also rooted like the boy is my son and the house is my son upstate you know so it's like rooted it's it has this kind of internal documentative aspect where it's yeah. it's uh it flows out of like a real space you know all right i just have one more question and we'll take a few from the audience um so you're all producers uh you guys co-wrote it um you shot it and edited it so what did the director do he just directed. He, we outsourced it. I mean, I, we're, our, our collaboration is, is, is very, it's extremely, um, it's, it's, it's rooted in writing and we've, you know, we've, we've produced a, made a, a really long sort of like pseudo radio play that Robin wrote that I um, produced and yeah, directed um, and did all of that. And, but the roles are really sort of, at least I'll speak for myself, I should say, interested in um, highlighting are those of, for me, it's like writing and editing. I think that often the act of directing is, 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 is sort of overblown. It's sort of just a, a necessary act, especially in a movie like this, and it was outsourced, yeah. We'll take a few audience questions. Uh, I think we have microphones as well, so if you raise your hand, somebody will come to you with a mic. Did you shoot the whole film on one camera? No, we shot it on two. And the first part one, the first summer, uh, sorry, winter, was shot on one camera. And um, 
summer was multi-camera, and they were shot on these on the on the camera that's cited in the movie. Um, these Sony BVW um, series, like old Betacam SP that we bought off eBay, and it shot on on actual like new old stock, like like unused stock um, tape stock um, that we also purchased off eBay. And yeah, I, thanks for noticing that actually, because there is a kind of I think like stylistic fluidity that shifts, you know, which was on purpose for using the multi, like the multicam to kind of have like a live like shifting. Um, feeling more like a TV show, like a TV show, I guess, rather than like a very like rigidly edited, um, like first part, you know, that was shot with one camera. So just a two-part question. So the, the choice to have the actors not meet each other, to have Clip not meet the couple was intentional from the beginning, correct? Yeah. So now if the audience doesn't know that when they see that and we kind of aren't given that background information later on, does that change the effect or I don't know what is your thoughts about that in terms of because I, I didn't realize that when I was watching it I, I felt like it looked disjointed I thought it's an editing style but I didn't realize they were shot in different places is my experience different if I don't know that that was an intentional choice or not I think it's almost like a it's like a seed that you can sense you know you can sense there's like an uh yeah exactly and that and that's inherent in the production and it's kind of inherent in like often the way just society is structured, you know, where like people just, if you make a movie without money, you have to deal with actors having like disjointed schedules. Yeah, so you have to, that's almost just, you have to allow that to exist in the movie, at least in this case. But the experience it, though being different, so yeah, it is, it is different. I mean, but that's not, I don't think there's like one right experience or wrong experience. It applies to anything, you know? It's like if you know that like your neighbor is, I don't know, a furry or something, you know, like that changes your experience. You know? um, that actually is might change things. But <laughs> I, I mean, I think one of the big things I, we, that you know the the actors told us is that it it definitely changed their performances. Um, and I think, I mean, I think we talked about there being some kind of weird subliminal way in which it would register to audiences. Not maybe they wouldn't get that he wasn't in the same room, but just that there's something kind of odd and it's the editing style, but it's also like the fact that, um, you know, the actors are talking to, well, mostly Robin and not, not the characters that they're addressing. So are we done? <laughs> I can ask one, one more question maybe to wrap it up. Um, so the film that you alluded to that you and Robin, um, made before was the Republic. The Republic, yeah. Which is a film. Um, I people haven't seen it. It's it's a film without visuals. Um, so it's uh, well, there's a there's visuals, right? Okay, without okay representational image. <laughs> representational, okay. Um, and I think like one of the things that you you were trying to do with that film, and, and I think in, in a lot of your work is to question like what what is cinematic, what is cinema, what counts as a film. Um, and I'm I'm wondering if there would there was a sort of similar like foundational sort of you know formal question that you guys were trying to work with in in, in this film i feel like because in the republic it, the republic started off we were actually going to shoot it like make a real movie and we went up to, we were in woodstock and it just kept falling apart more and more until like it, you know we kept on like recalibrating our ideas about I, you know what how a film worked kind of i, I thought and um we actually did a, a test shot with Clip, 
where we used him and the actress talking and they didn't meet again. And um, I felt like that that was like kind of a, it was like a, to me, like a crucial lesson in like learning how to just accept reality and making a movie and then make, then it becomes so much easier. Um, so I feel like a lot of filmmakers that when they make movies, they have this like internal guilt about being poor as if like them not having gotten funding is like a bad thing, you know, and they feel stupid and then they, and then they try to almost like make it seem like they had money in making the movie. So where the Republic is like the opposite of that, where it's a total acceptance of having no money. And that's, I think that's what, how it comes out. Yeah. Like it's sort of like led towards like an essential form or something, I guess. Yeah. And this, the plagiarist is a lot like that. You're like, we have like $2,500 or so, you know, or like whatever we have. And then you make the movie based on that and whatever it is, it is. But it's just about like embracing um, lack, I guess. But the other thing that, I, one of the things that I thought of when I saw, uh, James made a film called Indefinite Pitch that was, came out, I don't know, like two, yeah. And it's essentially like a slideshow with a, with a kind of voiceover text and the text is really dense. Um, and I remember at a Q&A, I think it was in Toronto, um, I don't know, like the images in the film are, are sort of black and white and they're, they're kind of beautiful but in a kind of generic way. And you talked about like how kind of easy it is to make these kinds of images today. And I, and I was thinking about that a lot in this film because there's so much emphasis in images in film <laughs> and I think, um, and, and there's a lot, there's so many conventions in sort of like art cinema and and the sort of certain kinds of beautiful images um, have just been sort of cheapened. Um, and I think we also are kind of like inundated with imagery in a way that we weren't, say, 15 years ago. So the question is like, how do you make a film that sort of justifies being a film that isn't reliant on a kind on a certain tropes of, of visual image making that are based on, um, you know, kind of, uh, either either they're very easy to they're actually quite easy to make if you have the right technology um, you know I mean we could have shot this on an iPhone like it, it, but I like the idea that you can make a film and it actually doesn't matter I mean in this way it does matter this film conceptually but I mean the I, I like this idea that you can actually that we're sort of at this point in time kind of free from um, the apparatus in certain ways because because you know, you can look at anything from Netflix to what's playing at Cannes or other stuff, and stuff looks the same nowadays a lot of the time. It's just an idea. All right, guys. Um, thank you so much uh, for being Thanks. here. And uh, yeah. send our best to Peter. You've been listening to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. Film at Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, Film at Lincoln Center presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do, and support Film at Lincoln Center by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. Film at Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>